This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. Hopefully your favorite Chelsea podcast out there. We hope you're staying safe, doing well, particularly when the Chelsea results are not so great. Dan, one of your hosts here. No Nick and Brandon, because this is a match preview pod. We are taking a look at this weekend's upcoming fixture against the Seagulls, Brighton. That's right, a very... Uh, not welcome matchup, I guess, at the moment, though maybe form in Europe is something telling potentially as to how a a wounded winged creature might be trying to make their make their status known or try to overcome the injuries that they are mounting up with. Because boy, oh boy, Sam, as you join me here to talk about this one. Uh, you know, Brighton are maybe just as interesting as Chelsea in terms of just the roller coaster type of season they've had, particularly coming into this season with a higher level, I think, of expectation than at least from the punditry than maybe people had of Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just after the dark clouds of gloom against Newcastle. I'm just looking for something to brighten my day. Um, sorry, I've I've been sitting on that pun for the longest time, but. You're absolutely wow. right. I think it's just <laughs> you didn't even laugh. You just gave me like a, a stoic wow. I mean, I expected better from you. I <laughs> I do expect those reactions from Nick and Brandon and the other members of LIBT, but not you. Not supportive of your co-host well, and, and your privileged guest on the pod. The the thing is talking over someone in a podcast does not make for a good program. And so I try you know, I may have laughed, I may have chuckled, but it, it definitely was not audible and it was uh, with the mic muted. So I, I apologize if I offended <laughs> you by not making a the audio experience, uh, not downgrading the audio experience. <laughs> none taken, none taken. As always, uh, the reactions to my puns tend to be um, disgraceful most of the time. So I'm, I'm used to it. But in terms of how you've sort of propped up Brighton, I would completely agree. It's There's also some parallels, I would say, Pochettino in terms of there is a manager who's proven that he can take a good side and make them better in certain aspects. And, and there's no doubt about it that Deserbi, uh, Pep Guardiola said that he's one of the most important coaches in the last two decades, and, and I tend to agree with it. Just in, in the sense of how good his vision of the game is, his philosophy, how well he develops players, the way he devises his system, and then how Brighton have played to to get to Europe is admirable. Uh, I know there's been a lot of animosity between the two fan bases, considering how much we've tried to uproot their entire structure and, and take it for ourselves. But all of it aside, as a neutral, um, it's been it's been very very good to watch Brighton last season. But we all know that they've lost a lot of incredible talent. Um, Kaiseido came to us, McAllister's gone to Liverpool. Um, so it, it's been tough for them to to acclimatize to that. Plus, they're going through their first injury crisis, their actual injury crisis in the middle of a European run. So lots of new problems for Deserby to face. A lot of questions about, does this guy have a plan B? And, and what does he do when his plan A doesn't work? I think those are questions that we'll probably try and explore through this podcast and, and hopefully see if we can uh, beat them over the weekend. Yeah, we definitely hope to not be hurt again by the Chelsea men's team this weekend. So we're going to take a look at Brighton in general, how they've been performing, what have they been doing in the league. And then I know, Sam, you watched the match today that they had in Europe, and you might have some additional information you'd like to share as well. We'll get into, just for those who haven't been watching, what, what, the, what are they doing well? Strengths? What are their opportunities or weaknesses? Get a little into what are the big problems that Pochettino is going to have to solve. And then try to make some predictions that hopefully, if positive, come true because our positive predictions against Newcastle did not. So we're going to jump into all that, but we also want to say thank you to everyone who supports the podcast. Wow, if you are a Spotify user, the wrapped stuff we've been seeing, the year-end wrap, has been incredible. Uh, please continue sharing those on social media. It's been great to see. It was great to see that the most downloaded or listened to episode on Spotify this year was, in fact, Sam, the Pochettino deep dive that we did before he joined. And uh, I think that is a testament to just how thorough you are when you come on the program. 
No, I think that, I mean, all those plaudits go to everybody who's tuning in. And I'm pretty sure that any of the esteemed guests that we have on LIBP, if they would have jumped on that podcast to talk about arguably one of the most exciting appointments that we've had, the numbers would have been the same. So I think it's just a testament to everybody who's been loyal through a very, very difficult year, I would say. And and my thank you and my heartfelt congratulations to everybody to have like stuck with us through thick and thin, through storm and rain, ice and hail. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'd just like to be super grateful for that. And, and I loved seeing everybody's wrapped and uh, getting tagged in it. It's been it's been giving me the festive sort of cheer a month before I'm actually supposed to immerse myself fully in it. Yeah, it's like uh, the Mariah Carey hit song, a little bit of serotonin drop for you as it relates to making you feel good about the work that we're doing here. And uh, look, Sam is too modest to say it, but I'm not. We'd also love uh, five-star views on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help people find the podcast and get connected to it. We know there's more Chelsea supporters out there who would benefit from, hopefully, the type of information that we drop on this episode. And look, you can also join us on YouTube as well and hit the like and subscribe buttons on videos and on the channel over there. Hit the notify button slash bell icon to keep up to date for when we drop something over there as well. And then look, you can hit the link in the description of the show notes for the podcast um, Discord community and then also our newsletter as well that Sam puts out every week. You should jump on both of those great opportunities but look sam that's it that's the spiel at the beginning because we're going to take a look at brighton hove albion the gulls who are currently with a record of six four and three in the premier league on 22 points averaging 1.69 points per game that gives them eighth in the premier league home record of three three and one 12 points a way record of three one and two on 10 points, goals total 28, so 2.15 per game. Goals against 23, 1.77 per game, so a difference of five. Their expected goals are 22.3, so definitely an overperform. Expected goals allowed 18.9, so underperform there, difference of 3.4. And their last match in the league was a 3 2 win against Nottingham Forest, where they saw a red card as well. So they do have a fair number of injuries. Uh, Scipion would probably be one of note. Solly March would be another one. Danny Welbeck. And then the potential issue now for Ansu Fadi and then also Tarek Lampady is another one that they've talked about recently that's not captured in the sheet here with also Dunk being suspended. I think you're right. They are absolutely in a bit of a crisis as well, though that didn't seem to stop Newcastle. Will it stop Brighton? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, a very pertinent one, and and one that raises uh, traumatic memories of what should have been a good performance from us. But yeah, that's I think that's an important lesson before a game of similar magnitude against opponents that are depleted, and uh, they they ground out a result today um, at AEK in Athens, and it was going to be a slippery slippery performance, not because the place is in Greece, but. You know, it was definitely going to be tough because they wanted to qualify um, for the knockout stages and they'd done that. But they were underwhelming for the first half. Looked like a lot of players, um, you know, were trying to do things and just didn't happen. They got outshot by by quite a margin, but then they found their feet in the second half, got a good goal, a penalty, basically through Joao Pedro, who's now uh, the top scorer in the UEFA Europa League. So. That's something to definitely keep an eye on. And yeah, I think it's going to be a long trip for them from Greece. And uh, hopefully they are well rested and, and better prepared for the game than Newcastle. And and we can take away the three points against a side uh, which is definitely lacking, like you said, important presence all across the, the front line and the back. You know, Estupinian, like you mentioned, huge miss. I think he makes their left side absolutely devastating with Mitoma. So his loss is going to be a big one. Solimarch also, the deputy there is, is again, a doubt or possibly out. Um, Webster again, I think in, in place of Dunk, he would have been the number one guy to come in. But now they've got to go with um, Igor, I think, along with Van Hecke. So that's going to be there too in the back line. And Fatih, for example, was also doing pretty well scoring a couple of good, important goals. He got one against Manchester City. So 
lacking depth as well. So yeah, lots of issues. But uh, like you said, didn't stop Newcastle. Hopefully we can change that and uh, go for the jugular. Hi, we're going to talk about the style of play in more detail in just a moment. We're going to take a very quick break and we're back. We'll get into the style of play. How is Zerbi maybe updated or modified the team with some of the considerations of the outgoing players? And has that style of play changed or evolved as much as we think in 2023, 2024? So stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right, Sam. So I teased it out before the break, but the question would be is if I watch Brighton last season, saw expansive football, I saw an engaging side. And look, when we didn't feel like we were getting mugged over by them, maybe it was an enjoyable neutral watch. But, you know, things got pretty sour pretty quickly. And maybe it was less... It wasn't as easy to be supportive of the Seagulls' rise and ascension. So where are they at now? And do you feel like Deserby is coming to a realization around what will and won't continue to work in the Premier League from what earned him the plaudits in the you know general portion, the majority of last season? Yeah, it's been an interesting trajectory from last season to now. Like we talked about losing key players and it's not been an issue for Brighton uh, for a couple of seasons where they've got arguably one of the best recruitment setups. Tony Bloom's done a fantastic job. So it's just replacing the right amount of you know players with i would say replacements that could rise to that level maybe in a in under a year or around that time frame but i've i've basically done a lot of research in terms of there's been an incredible amount of literature on deserby and i would highly recommend one by the purist you can find him on twitter or x and you can find him on on youtube and there's this video that he's done on Deserby, which is excellent and talks about what the philosophy is and, and what it talks about Brighton as the larger picture. And one point that it raises is when you've got a team that is one man's vision and then you can basically not rely so much on individual quality in a positional setup, then, you know, even if you swap out certain players, then you can bring in players of a magnitude, uh, like comparable comparable magnitude and, and not see a, a difference in results. But clearly that has been proven wrong. You know, they thought that Kaiseru could be sold for 100 and they could get Balaba in and that would basically continue uh, what they'd been doing. But he struggled a little bit. Um, the goalkeeping situation has changed and and Parfait Bergren is somebody who's come in. He's also had his moments. So they've made changes all around. And I think they're still acclimatizing. Teams, I think, against them are now becoming cleverer in terms of how to stop them. We'll we'll talk more about this in the weaknesses section in terms of how they've been found out and, and what's been the, the fix for a lot of teams trying to play against Deserby. But in general, it looks like Deserby himself is evolving. He's trying to find what the next step is and as a manager and, and how he needs to make this team evolve with him. What is the response to a crisis? How do you adapt? How do you overcome? And what happens when your plan A is basically negated by the opposition blueprint? And, and that's that's been, I think, the big theme of Brighton's performances. They've lacked individual control. I think when you take them out of their very powerful setup, you tend to see how individuals struggle. I would also point to Moises Caicedo as a reference. You know, we've arguably not seen the best of him because <clears throat> I think when he's moved out of Brighton's setup, he's still trying to find his feet in a new one. He's trying to figure out what the dynamic is with Enzo Fernandez. He's also been moved around in a couple of positions. He's played in a double pivot. He's also played as the lone DM. So it's something that's happened to a lot of players that move away from Brighton. And I think that's going to be the larger theme for them this season. But so far, it's not going good. Um, they've been scoring a lot of goals, which is always excellent because the front line is largely the same with a couple of good additions like Simon Adingra. But other than that, it's uh, defensively they're suffering. So, yeah, I think it's just we meet them at an import, important juncture and hopefully we'll not give them any more inspiration than they need right now. Yeah, we, we don't want to be the spark to another team's return to form or rise up the table and... Uh... Ultimately, as you kind of look at it, are there specific 
patterns of play or changes? Like I know that we've seen, you know, you mentioned uh, the goalkeeper change a little bit, obviously former club versus uh, new club with uh, Sanchez kind of coming in, in addition to uh, Caicedo and, you know, and to Kukurea. So like there is a little bit of the uh, former players versus uh, the, the new players that they've gotten to replace them. Um, but considering who's missing are there any things that they're going to struggle to do that they would like to do typically? So let's sort of try and break down what the team is all about in its current, you know, absolute pristine state, what, what the philosophy is. So in terms of, if you look at it from a, from a drone's eye view, it's Deserby loves playing a four, two, three, one. That's his preferred shape. He's got, very interesting components. When you talk about patterns, patterns are everything to Deserby. You know, he wants players to absolutely adhere to the structure that it, like any positional coach, he gives you the freedom to interpret what your position is in, in that area. Like how you interpret that role is up to you, but you have to be in that place at a certain point in time. I think that's what Deserby emphasizes, which is why a lot of what Brighton do is almost muscle memory. It's, it's like choreographed. It's a dance sequence. The way they play out of pressure, it's usually up, back, and through, as what coaches say. So, you know, it's usually players receiving the second pass, not the first pass. So instead of a centre-back passing directly to his centre-back partner, it's usually bounced off a defensive midfielder and comes back to the centre-back. So you have more time and you obviously have a little bit of an, um, of an added advantage of seeing and mapping out what's in front of you so you can play that pass quicker. So that's what Deserby does. He gives you freedom. He gives you a little bit of time. And it's it's all about knowing when to speed up and when to slow down. I think that's what Brighton do very, very well. Uh, something that that's extremely good is, I think, his use of the number 10 as well as the center forward. This is something that I think probably poses the the biggest question or the biggest challenge to us when we play them. What he's done is Evan Ferguson, who we've looked at as a center forward option, has played as a number 10. So he played a number 10 today and João Pedro played a center forward. But he's also switched those positions back and forth. You know, João Pedro has played a center forward. He's played as number 10. So what that essentially does is both players are fluid and it allows one player to drop and essentially roam around and the other person to exploit the space that is created by the other one. So it's it's effectively pretty similar to what we were doing in preseason. You know, we, we looked at what Nkunku was doing and, and how he was trying to run beyond Jackson when Jackson was trying to drop. But this happens on a more frequent basis. So he's effectively trying to create space and he's giving players an interesting set of tactical instructions in terms of how to create space in behind. You know, they they like the ball, but it almost looks like they're always counter-attacking or they're always playing in transition, which sort of suits their players. Uh, I would also say that their players are, like the white players are of a particular ilk. If you look at Kaoru Mutuma, you look at um, Simon Adingra, they're very quick 1v1 players, able to take on, able to take a very direct approach to attacking. And... If you look at their build-up, it's it's about trying to play through the center. I think that's their identity. They love the central part of the pitch. They want to essentially rip through your heart and go straight, you know, to the to the direct role, to the direct route to goal as possible. They don't want to to mess around in wide channels if you know if the if, if there is a chance of not doing it and going to the channels, they just go through the center and, and try to get it back to front as quick as possible. Um, in the build-up, it's the shape's usually 2-4-4. Sometimes the goalkeeper joins in, so you have a 3-4-4, um, which, which helps them sort of have superiority in those areas. Um, like I talked about, Kaisero at DM was somebody that he nurtured as a very rare destroyer slash possession adept midfielder so he could play those cute passes through through pressure and he could also do a lot of the destroying that was required in the system they've struggled to replicate that Alexis McAllister was also somebody who was extremely smart uh, in deeper areas could also function higher up the pitch they've struggled to replicate his usefulness 
across the pitch. So I think that's that's something that uh, they struggle to do. And out of possession, it's four four two, but a very aggressive four four two to a point where um, even when they go to a mid block, they're effectively what you call indirectly pressing. They're pressing a player without the ball to ensure that the pass doesn't go to that player. So it's effectively trying to discourage the guy on the ball from playing a pass because you're constantly, you know, showing aggression. You're constantly saying that if you play the pass there, I'm definitely going to go and exert pressure. So they do exert a very aggressive approach that I think second in the league uh, for PPTA passes the defensive action. So extremely aggressive on the numbers as well. And I would say they're very good at passing the ball out of pressure. Yeah, in terms of medium and long passes, they're back four. Dunk, for example, Webster, all of these guys are very, very good at hitting long balls to, to guys like Mitoma or Adingra from back to front. They're very good at hitting these grass cutters. So it's almost like a long pass, but it absolutely kisses the ground as it goes 30 yards from back to front. Um, and it happens very regularly. So if a Bergen plays, you have to watch out for a long ball from the goalkeeper to the number 10, which basically crosses eight different players to, to get to that particular juncture. So that's something that we have to be switched on to. And I would say in terms of another big, big plus is that they're very good at press evasion. They're just so well coached in terms of avoiding pressure in terms of playing out and luring you out in numbers. So they'll encourage you to press with four, five, six players, and then they'll slice through you. And once you get Mitoma in those situations where he's running against your back line, uh, then it's going to be very, very difficult to stop him, especially because we've had trouble with the likes of Thiago Silva, the likes of Axel de Sassi. A lot of the guys against quicker threats haven't looked as convincing as we would want them to look. So that's something that you that you definitely have to look at. So overall, a team that presses hard, counter presses very, very well, um, score a lot of goals, like we mentioned. I think there's only one team in the league, Manchester City, that have more open play goals than them in the league this season. Um, they can go short, they can go long very precisely and create one v one threats against against the wide areas. And when you consider that we don't have Reese James. Um, you know, we might have to use Axel Desasi there because Gusto wasn't pictured in, in training pictures today. That's a little bit of a terrifying thought on on that part of the pitch. And uh, yeah, left back Colville, again, if he's going to be up against Simon Adingra, then what's going to be the outcome there? So lots of questions against a very, very good side. And I would, you know, exercise caution, even though they're missing a lot of key players, I think they're going to be a very dangerous opponent. Well, before we send people to bed with nightmares because you said a lot of really nice things about Brighton and things that on paper, given the fact that they're playing in European competitions and we're not that they're, uh, you know, scoring multiple goals per game. And we're not always doing that though. The recent trend has been better where, where are the weaknesses? Because I feel as if even in the results that Chelsea had in one of our worst seasons against Brighton and is that like the the one two uh loss in late mid-April like we saw at least in that game Trev Chalba had a pretty fantastic performance against Mitoma it would be nice to have him available to deputize his right back in the moment um and most of our matches outside of the 4-1 in the middle of October in 2022, and then the 3-1 win in 2020, uh, in, in September of, uh, of 2020, most of our games have either been a draw or like a 1-0 win. Like, they've not been the most exciting games because I think both these teams want to actually play football, don't, don't give each other a ton of opportunities, uh, defend well enough, not always as clinical as they need to be in attack. And so I, I feel like, this is a good matchup for Chelsea? Like, even though there are a lot of things that they do really well? Mm, the most important thing is, I think we've banished the voodoo by defeating them in the cup. I think that was extremely important from um, a familiarity standpoint. I think you sometimes go into those matches thinking, God, it's it's a side further on in the project under a very good manager. 
it's going to be a tough game. But then we showed that we can compete and do very well against them. So I think it was important to get that kind of a matchup done, obviously early on in the season and even in preseason where we ran out, like you mentioned, uh, comfortable winners. So it's it's definitely a, a good start in terms of being able to say that we've played them twice already and we know what to expect. You don't want to be caught out cold. But in terms of uh, like weaknesses, I would say the first we've mentioned quite a quite a lot of times, but I think it's important to emphasize this that you know injuries and transfers have definitely depleted them. I think from an individual standpoint, from a one v one, not looking at them as a unit. It's definitely a weaker side. I think Lewis Dunk is going to be a massive, massive um, miss for them in the middle of defense. He was absolutely excellent today, like you expect him to be. I think he's extremely underrated. Um, should have been in the English setup, in the national team setup. Um, but, you know, without him, I struggle to see where the leadership comes. I struggle to see where the dominance in the air comes. I mean, he's... I think at around 74% or 70% in the air in terms of aerial duel percentage. And Brighton CBs are good, but I don't think there's anybody as commanding as him. Even when you look at second balls, he's the top recovery guy with 74 recoveries and the next highest is 49. So he's somebody who's also a second ball killing machine and, and somebody who swallows every opportunity for the opposition to convert into an attack and he basically like sends you forward. So... He's an all-round player, the captain, who's, who's definitely going to be a big miss. I think that's that's definitely going to be an issue. I also mentioned Palaba. He's shown he's got some great quality, which makes you understand why Brighton went for him as a Kaiseido replacement. But he's still struggling in, in certain parts of the game. So you can press him. He's also made uh, a couple of errors. One of them, he basically tried to clear from a throw-in and he gave the ball directly to Erling Haaland, who scored the second and Man City actually went on to win 2-1. So that must have hurt a little bit. So he's young, but also raw. So some of the similarities that you also see with our side, I think you could say that Brighton are also experiencing that. So that would be something to exploit. If you're looking at 1v1 quality, try to pick out who you're going to go up against. I think those two names that I mentioned, whoever replaces Dunk at centre-back, try to figure out how you can get at them try to figure out how you can give Baliba problems. I think that's going to be the number one issue. The second, I would say, is defensively, they've looked uncharacteristically poor. I think uh, their mojo has been dented a little bit. They're essentially how organized they look earlier on. It's It's been destabilized by a lot of factors. They they look shaky when they're playing out at times. Sometimes when they're trying to, to do... A little bit too much. Um, that also goes down to another point that I'm going to mention later on. So, so we'll talk about that. But for example, the goalkeeper, Parthel Bergen, um, he's yet to settle in. And uh, Brighton have the worst post-shot expected goals, um, plus minus. So post-shot expected goals essentially tells you how likely um, the shot was to be stopped. So that essentially adjusted for it. Brighton should have saved four 4.1 goals more, but they've conceded four goals more than they should have. Um, and then that's the worst in the Premier League. So the goalkeepers, both goalkeepers, Jason Steele and um, and Fabergen have, have both had issues with basically keeping shots out. They also look very vulnerable to counterattacks. And, and that's in part to, to their identity of being very aggressive in the press. So when they've tried to press high quality sites like Manchester City, like Liverpool, like even Aston Villa this season, they've pressed with four, um, five, sometimes six players and some good sides have been able to, to get beyond them and run at their defence and, and it hasn't been pretty. So um, they're, I think, top of the league in terms of goals conceded from counter-attacks with four. They've also conceded six shots, six, six goals from outside the box, I think, which is... Again, first in the Premier League. So long-range shooting, also a viable um, outlet there. But we haven't seen any stunners, to be honest, from us. Raheem Sterling got one last game. So hopefully, uh, Pot will be saying, you know, try and get a couple of shots in. Palmer, for example, great long-range shooter, but shooting a little too long from range, yeah. maybe a little closer to goal. And and hopefully, we can see um, results there. So I think those two factors I would definitely be looking at. The third, I would say, is is something that we mentioned. I think there's a lack of plan B. 
And this ties into the second point as well. So why are they struggling? It's it's particularly down to a lot of managers now finding out that what you can do with Brighton is essentially deny them any space centrally. So instead of trying to, you know, fall for that trick in terms of trying to go and press the center backs or press the goalkeeper, you stand off. You essentially go into a very narrow, compact shape and you guard the double pivots. You don't let the center backs go to the double pivots and you force them to go wide. And the moment you force Brighton to go wide, that's when you jump. <clears throat> that's when you shift your shape to whichever side the ball is in and you win the ball back or you force them to go long. And that's where the success comes. So when I've looked at games in the past, um, Liverpool, for example, uh, Aston Villa, both of them used the same strategy out of possession. It's been a 4-3-1-2 or a 4-4-2 diamond. And what they've done is they've essentially got their front two guys not trying to jump too often on centre-backs, but essentially sitting on the double pivot of Brighton. And then you've got um, one of those, like the tip of the diamond, like for example, um, Dominic Schauberslai was was the one for Liverpool. So he's going to be one behind and guarding any, any free player that drops. You've got um, your base of the diamond, whoever it is, McAllister it was for Liverpool, who was guarding the number 10. And then you've got two centre-backs against whoever playing, whoever is playing centre-forward. So it, it marks out very well. It also is a very narrow system. So you're basically denying them any space in the centre and, and they've struggled to do anything about it. One solution that, that Deserby has tried is basically trying to spread out his centre-backs more. So you've got more ground to cover when you're pressing centre-backs, but it's it's not worked either. He's tried dropping Pascal Gross to make it a three at the back, but you know a lot of teams have just stood back and said, okay, what now? Like, you know, we're not going to press you, so how are you going to, to unsettle our strategy to not let you pass through the centre? And on the counter side, there have been times when Brighton have just said, you know what? I'm going to try doing it anyway. And and they've given goals away. They've done that against Liverpool, where I think Fabrigan went uh, through the middle and and the ball was lost and Liverpool counterattacked. And uh, they essentially got Salah. Uh, first goal came through that. And the second, they gave away a penalty. And both of them were ball losses through trying to play through the centre. So I think you block off central access and you have a very good chance of, of spoiling the game plan. And the last one I would say is... Uh, particularly something that I saw in their games against City and Liverpool was that they're pretty weak when you get dribblers in central areas. They just look in complete chaos and disarray. So Mohamed Salah, uh, who was playing on the right wing, essentially came central. And when he was running through midfield, it just it, it looked like it was a brilliant strategy. Phil Foden, the number of times he was able to run through the centre, you know, drag... Brighton narrow and then give the ball to Jeremy Doku, for example, out wide. Excellent strategy. It tended to work a lot. And when you look at their tackle percentage against dribblers, it's, I think, the second worst in the league with 38.7%. So they do struggle against quicker threats to the middle. So if you're going to try and get Raheem Sterling or Mikhailo Modric, instead of trying to go wide, I would say try and position them a little centrally and see if you can run at the heart of the defense or the heart of the midfield. And I think that will give you a lot of success. So four points in total. And uh, if we can exploit any of those, then I think we stand to gain a little bit and uh, come back with the three points. Well, that would be a nice way to uh, claw back some credit at the MX. But we're going to take a very quick break and then we're getting into how Pochettino is going to potentially solve or address these problems, particularly with a couple of forced changes to the lineup as well. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. All right, Sam. So I think there's things that we just table stakes have to lay down for people as we look at what Pochettino might do in this match to take advantage of the weaknesses and mitigate the strengths that you outlined so eloquently a moment ago. We know Kukure is not available due to suspension after picking up a card in the last match. We know Reese James is not available after picking up a red card in the last match. So our defensive makeup is going to likely be very different. And I would almost get into just even jump into the fact that like the lineup is going to be a little wonky relative to what we've seen before. I would not be shocked if our defense was a combination of Levi Colwell as a left back 
it is Benoit Badashio plus Tiago Silva as center backs and Disasi as a right back. I think that is potentially extremely realistic because we've not seen, as you pointed out before we started recording, Malagusto in the training photos. So there is potentially a concern recording this before the press conference. So we don't know if he is officially out, but that would be a concern considering we do not have Reese at the moment. So I feel like that's where we should start is how comfortable does that back line make you against the attack that you discussed previously? Um, yeah, I think there are some impending decisions to be made on the back line and it's just been fitness enforced. Um, as much as I love Thiago Silva, I think he's been fantastic for us in terms of his presence, in terms of his leadership. I think long-term, especially with January approaching and him being out of contract, I think Poch might be forced to figure out what the long-term picture looks like. And I think the long-term picture does look like Levi Colville. Penwa Badia Shield and on the right side when Wesley Fofana has fit him or Axel Tisasi. I think that makes it uh, a three-man backline. You can also go Badia Shield and Disasi because they've played at Monaco extensively. And when you've got that organic understanding between center back partners, then essentially you can you can figure out that they're going to play well together. Uh, I think they've done very well at Monaco. So even if you do have that as three of your four backline, I think that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, the right back slot scares me a bit. I'm not going to lie. Uh, Thiago Silva at the right center back slot, especially considering we tend to go three at the back. Um, he's not somebody who's used to that wide center back role. He's not. You know, you can't uh, expect a 39-year-old to, to dynamically sprint and close down whoever it is on, on that side of the pitch. We saw it in the last game. I, I talked about... Before the game, you know, I put out a tweet saying that could be an issue and and it ended up being an issue because on transition, when he was moving high, it was it was just looking like he was not comfortable with that position. He was somebody who likes being able to read and essentially react, not not be proactive. He doesn't have, you know, that explosiveness, that athleticism anymore to be able to do that anymore. So you you want him to be the deepest defender somebody who's backtracking and reading where the danger is and reacting it to, to it at the last moment. And I think when you play him on the right-hand side, um, it tends to be a little bit of a of an issue. So I don't know if if Colville is fit, then Poch goes with that bold decision of dropping Silva. Um, but, you know, considering that we don't have a right back, if Gusto isn't there, then we might see all four centre-backs start, which I don't know how to feel about. Oh, it, w- it would be the equivalent of having three goalkeepers in the lineup with a uh, four center back offering as a back four. But, you know, it has been done before, so I don't think that would necessarily be the worst thing in the world, but it is definitely makeshift. So fingers crossed that maybe Gusto is just not available at the time of taking photos to or potentially slipped by the photographer and is available on the weekend, rushing, you know, getting ready back to full fitness. But uh, if not, expect some level of makeshift backline. When you think about the next step forward into midfield, I know we've kind of circled on maybe some less than stellar performances, particularly in the last match, but inconsistent performances across our midfield trio. We know also we have... It seems like Lavia is almost back to being healthy. seems like Nkuku is almost back to being healthy and available. We know that we were getting the hints of that before the international break. We're seeing them in the training photos. They're posting about it, so they're clearly itching to get back onto the pitch. Again, I don't think any of them just drops into a starting role. I do think it is the work them back into the lineup with a cameo and then a larger cameo and then maybe the start. So usually like a two to three match runway to get them back and going, particularly for those who've had longer injury spells. What's your thought on if Pochettino will go back to his Caicedo Enzo Gallagher? Because we know that obviously Caicedo is not fully available for the last match. So we had Leslie Ugochukwu play the majority of the match in that position. But it feels like most likely with all the changes in the back that Pochettino is going to want to go back to a midfield that he feels more comfortable with, even if it may not be the favorite amongst all Chelsea supporters. 
Yeah, I think when I watched the Newcastle game back, it just looked like everybody had an off day. Even Gallagher, who I've been singing, you know, to high heavens, he, he had a couple of moments where his concentration waned, where he let Bruno Guimaraes just stride forward. The first chance that was created for Alexander Isak was when Gallagher failed to track him and, and Bruno was able to pay, play him under no pressure uh, over the top. So those are little things which you look at and say, okay, that was a loss in concentration, especially from somebody who was given the captaincy role, but then also the captain on the day had a lapse of concentration. So I'm eager to put that entire performance out of memory into the recycle bin and say that never happened because those days tend to happen, especially like post long European days, post international break. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it. So I think when you say that there is going to be a hint of familiarity in terms of, yes, uh, this is my strongest midfield. I think that very well happens. Um, against Arsenal, I think the setup that we might use here, uh, you know, resembles the closest thing. So I would say that's, you know, that it essentially will give you the same midfield as well. It's just, I'm trying to figure out if we do go 4-4-2 with a, with a narrow side, then who plays as the, the midfielder? Uh, in behind, you put Palmer uh, next to Nico Jackson to press and and field the the top two, or do you put you know Sterling there? Uh, if you look at Liverpool, for example, they had Darwin Nunez and and Mo Salah doing the shielding work and pressing the centre backs, and they had Luis Diaz, who's a winger, uh, doing midfield work and essentially shunting left and and centre. You know, Sterling's got the intelligence to do it. Um, but so has Palmer. I think he's got a little bit of an underrated interception game and trying to make clever decisions. But, you know, will he have the discipline? And then that's going to be a big, big question. So um, midfield, I think, will remain the same. I think Nico Jackson continues. Uh, we might see Armando Broya, though. I mean, for a longer time, I think he's approaching that that juncture where he can play 30 minutes, maybe next week it's going to be 60, and then he can essentially try and challenge Jackson for a for a role on the consistent basis. But I think it will be the same lineup. It's just defense that's going to be the big question mark for me. Yeah, I think those are all good considerations. It feels like Sterling, you know, again, he had an off day, but did score a wonderful free kick in the loss against Newcastle might be better suited on that left-hand side. And I, I do think, you know, the interesting thing of Palmer sitting behind Nico Jackson, similar to what Nkunku might be doing in the very near future. And then maybe, you know, someone like, oh, I don't, I don't even know. Uh, or, you know, the, the thought that you had, maybe like you put, you know, Broya uh, up there with, with Nico, and that could be an option. Um, go a little heavier on the uh, the attack because you know you're going to be looking to spring it in advance forward. Uh, there's a lot of questions, I think, about what that attack is going to look like. Um, what is your what is your projected lineup? So we've kind of talked about some options, but where do you think Pochettino is going to settle on at the end of the day? We you know, know that some of those are forced changes, so they're not necessarily changes we would make. <laughs> Uh, but we're trying to realistically project what we think a starting 11 might be on the day. Yeah, I think in terms of just looking at what's been the training pictures on the day, we know that Pochettino isn't taking any risks. Colville had a shoulder injury, did not risk him. So I think the same thing happens with Gusto as well. If if there's some issue, he does not play. So I'm guessing it'll be disassociate right back. Um, you've got Silva, you've got uh, Benoit Badgeshil and Levi Colville. I think that's the back four. You've got our three midfielders in Caicedo, Enzo, and Gallagher. And then you've got Palmer, Sterling, and Nico Jackson. I think that's the projected lineup. I, I would say that this is a game in which I'm not looking at trying to be fancy and trying to create chances. I think it's just trying to figure out how well you can nullify them. If we can stay compact like we did against Arsenal, if we can you know, be absolutely sure of how we do without the ball, I think there is a genuine chance we come off, uh, you know, looking very, very good. I think we can, we have the quality, we have the discipline to do it. It's just application on the day, you know, a hundred percent. We've done it before. And I looked at the Arsenal performance and I said, that's, that's textbook. You couldn't have played better against a side like that. So I think um, if you take the same approach and, and you keep it in mind, 
I, you know, I, I predict a happy one here, but then again, I looked at Newcastle and said it would be happy. So I'm just trying to keep my feet on the ground and uh, hopefully don't have to eat my words back. Oh no, you can't, you're not, you're not going to be happy heading into this one. Your projection is not at least a little positive or neutral. <laughs> no, I, I am, I am, I would say that I'm confident. I think, you know, looking at what's preceding the game, obviously Brighton have had to go to a grueling fixture. Thursday fixtures are not easy. Europa League fixtures are brutal. So I think traveling all the way to Greece, coming back is going to be an issue. Their starters having played, like most of the starters, key starters played 70 plus minutes. I think that's going to be an issue. Um, you just have to figure out certain things, like which of your centre-backs is going to to drop when Joao Pedro or Ferguson drops. I think that's going to be a big question. And and if we don't do it properly, then, then we're in big trouble. So I think you take care of the basics. I'm optimistic because I, I, I've seen this game plan unfold before. So... You know, I would say that in ideal circumstances, in a utopian world, this looks like a 2-0 for me or a 2-1 for me, considering we've not defended very well. But um, yeah, I would be very happy with a clean sheet, even with the 1-0, but I, it looks like a 2-1 to me. What about you? Ooh, that's a good one. I The fact that the players who are missing, the key players who are missing for Brighton tend to be more of their defensive-minded individuals rather than their attackers leads me to believe that we do not look robust enough. And with the changes to that back line, they will not be as stalwart as we need. So I, I do think the concession of a goal is likely. I do think I'm, I'm hopeful that we can win two one. I think it, it, you would not surprise me if you said we was a one, one draw and we split the points. I would say that that potentially is very possible given the fact that uh, Brighton have regressed a little bit year over year. We've, we're improved, even though it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> um, we're an improved side. Um, we're just inconsistent still and young. And like that, that's the part of it being a growing process. But when you look at, I think the things that would predicate like this should be successful is like, you know, our, our shots are up, our conversion is up. Um, you know, up until recently, our goals uh, conceded was, was, uh, you know, we were uh, performing well there too. So, like, ultimately, you were one of the best. You're absolutely spot on. It's just like eight goals in two games. And we've gone from third in the league to, to mid table. And I think yeah. that's just, like you said, it's a young side. And sometimes this thing happens. You know, you play against two very good sides at the top of the table. Uh, and then this happens, and you suddenly, like, your metrics look off. But it doesn't dilute the fact that in terms of expected goals, we were second in the league. We're somewhere fourth now after the Newcastle game. We were very good for defensive metrics. Uh, Sanchez was doing very well. He's dropped down the table. But it's just, I think, a game-to-game -game basis. And, and you have to look at what the numbers were before and say, look, we are a side that deserves to be in the top four. Yeah. On numbers, don't we 100% have to be there. You know, and and that's what Pochettino will be saying. Look, the numbers speak for themselves. Your output speaks for itself. So, you know, why are you scared? I know that a lot of the people have talked about the Chelsea sides of past. And I, I don't quite agree with people saying this is Chelsea and this is what the DNA is. But I do agree with the fact that what the Chelsea sides of old did very well was that if you came up with an ailing side or if a side with a little bit of confidence issues walked up to Stamford Bridge, you get thwacked. You get absolutely played out the park. You know, that's the kind of attitude that Chelsea sides of old had. And I think that's the killer instinct that you have to develop with these players. It has to be smelling blood. You know that, you know, if the player's injured, it's you shouldn't be afraid that you're going to be humiliated if you lose. You should look at it as an opportunity to inflict more pain. And I think the moment we get that through a young bunch through a promising group of players to, to capitalize on that feeling. I think that's when the corner turns. We have done that, but it needs to be done consistently, like you said. And once we do that, then obviously, hopefully, uh, we'll get back to, to the creme de la creme of European competition and put our foot down. Well, let's hope this can be a step in the right direction. Up the table. Beating Brighton. Getting the result that we're looking for. And putting Chelsea back on the path forward as the first match of December. And we're going to make it a December to remember instead of one to annex 
to the annals of history because it starts and ends poorly. We, we want to get everything going in the right direction here when uh, Chelsea are opening that advent calendar and hopefully getting a, a sweet surprise and not a uh, nasty situation unfolding. So that's going to do for this episode, though. And hopefully let us know what you're thinking in terms of what the Brighton match is going to have in store for us, if you agree or disagree, or maybe if you think the lineup is going to be remarkably different. We forgot the scorers. I mean, who who's your predicted scorer oh, for the Oh, scorer for the week. Um would would it be crazy if Nkunku comes on in the last ten minutes and scores the winner? Well, that would be pretty exceptional. You're a sucker for fair, aren't you? I am. I love it. <laughs> I mean, that would be if you're if I would say fair yeah, if you're one like one one or like zero zero and if he comes and scores, then yeah, caviar on top of whatever four-star meal that you're eating. But yeah, absolutely. That would be that would be incredible. Just to see him on the pitch would be would be fantastic for me. I think that's something that that would be a big step forward for us in the season. So yeah, if Nkunku does it, superb. But I would also like to highlight that they have as as of now, they only have one fit fullback. So I, I do look at Raheem Sterling and I say that, you know, probably that guy is going to do it. So Hopefully it'll be in Kunku, but not going to complain if it's Premier League Player of the Month nominated Raheem Sterling. Well, look, we will take both. All we will, all we're really asking for is a Chelsea win, no injuries, and you know, a goal or two. That not asking for a whole lot here. So hopefully Pochettino and the team can deliver. But that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you, Sam. Thank you to all our wonderful listeners. Thank you for sharing all those wonderful Spotify raps. Continue to do that. Tag us in them as you post them across the various social media platforms. Love to see those. It makes our Hearts grow three times in size, about to explode out of our chest, but that's going to do it. So until next time, Chelsea fans, after hopefully a win, we'll get back with you. Keep the flag flying high.